Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Is the pandemic over? I don't know. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins me for the hour and answers your questions, texts, and dispels COVID-19 myths like, will the vaccine make you more magnetic? Doubtful, but your attitude in life might make you more magnetic. And if you're more magnetic, you may experience more of these. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Maureen's Health Headline. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Re-Emerging Viruses. He's also an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry, College of Medicine and Allied Health Services, University of Sierra Leone. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Listen, in, in response to me being on for an hour, I'm just going to automatically say to your audience, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you guys have to bear with me for, for twice as long tonight. This is a scientist with a sense of humor. If you follow him on Twitter, you will see that. <laughs> um, it it, it gets your... me through the dark times. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, I, I know I get it. <laughs> Um, if you can't laugh, what can you do? Um, exactly. I read your article in Forbes magazine um, tonight that you posted on Twitter. Very interesting article. Um, but then, you know, no no bats were harmed during the production of this. Or <laughs> yes, not not anyway. funded by Big Bat. So not funded. That was it. That was it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do any of us get any funding for this work that we do? <laughs> oh, yeah. Honestly. You know, it's funny though, right? Like, I mean, that I posted it because that was that was two years ago. Um, it was, I think it was on April seventeenth that we actually uh, that we got it posted. But I remember, you know, sitting beside the uh, the, the much more esteemed uh, Dr. Peter Chuck and, and putting this together and saying, I, you know, I, I don't know how controversial this is going to be and and what the the response is going to be. Um, it, it you know it was kind of like we we got to get ahead of this. Um, certainly, there was the conspiracy theories were, were starting about. Um, you know, this being an engineered virus and that this was a new bioweapon. And we were hearing all this chatter coming out and there wasn't a lot of context about, listen, this is what viruses do. Uh, it is certainly, you know, we, we it shouldn't be unexpected um, that that viruses spill over. We, we've seen lots of this. Um, we've got to talk about the, the nuance and the context behind this. Um, but it was also the sense of saying, like, are we too early in, in putting this out, because, I, you know, there was that feeling of people looking for an immediate uh, finger to point at, at what was to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, you know, two years later, I, I, in, I think I, that there's been some clarity in, in what's happened. Um, but but certainly uh, there is still that that real kind of feeling of we, we need to know today exactly what happened. And, and I think. You know, a good example is looking, so the, this past week, a, you know, different virus, but um, there's a virus called Yovio virus, and Yovio belongs to the same family of viruses as Ebola and Marburg, so it's a filovirus. Well, they identified and isolated uh, Yovio virus from bats in Hungary. And, when we, and this is wow. astonishing, right? It's very important, but what we have to appreciate is that in 40-plus years, 46 years now, we have still not been able to isolate infectious Ebola virus from a bat. Now, 99% of all the data we have suggests that bats are the reservoir, um, but we don't have that finite piece. So when we talk about SARS-CoV-2, we have to appreciate is that these 
investigations, these surveillance studies uh, of trying to identify viruses in the wild, this doesn't take weeks or months. This often takes decades of time. So we're, we're moving forward. But listen, if anybody thinks that by you know, the end of 2022, we're going to have a definitive answer, man, it's, yeah, there, there are a lot of other things uh, you, know, you, you should be trying to, to, to find uh, to, to keep yourself occupied because it, it's not, it, <laughs> the likelihood is it's not going to happen. And if it does, it's probably going to be through a chance event. And, and it'd be great if we did, but um, the, these things just take so long. Uh, they, they certainly do. I mean, and it's painstaking research, which is what kills me about a lot of people who make these claims or these conspiracy theories about Kobe uh, two, Kobe uh, SARS two, and um, you know they really don't know what they're talking about. Um, I, I know somebody who's actually lost a job because although they were vaccinated, they didn't get boosted, and and their place of employment requires a booster. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure. Sometimes I don't want to get into it with people, but, you know, people have all these false beliefs. But as you say, I mean, this could be decades away. Um, But two years on, you know, here we are. Uh, Is the pandemic over? (laughs) (laughs) It's not over, right? I mean, listen, I think that we we just need to to look back at at, uh, what Dr. Teresa Tam had, had said earlier this week and talked about surveillance ongoing in the country. Listen, there's a lot of areas, including my province, where we have zero concept of, of what's going on in regards to transmission in the community. We have some wastewater surveillance data that gives us a bit of a picture. Um, but what we should appreciate is that uh, when we look at certainly places like Ontario, other places that are releasing data, uh, what we're seeing right now is not completely unexpected. We remove all precautionary measures. We remove restrictions, we see transmission goes up. And by the way, there's also another, uh, you know, subvariant with BA2 that's more transmissible than BA1. And that, of course, is, is making its way in. It's a more fit variant. Um, it's going to push BA1 out. So it's going it's to expose, uh, you know, more of those communities that, that have not been vaccinated or who, who don't have protection. And, and we're going to see what we see. Now, the size of the wave, we don't know yet. Um, you know, we, we get some indications, certainly from Europe, what they've seen. The U.S. has given us some indications. I think a lot of it's going to be um, trying to figure out what is the best marker. If you wait for hospitalizations to increase, uh, transmission's already been, you know, been, been increasing, uh, you know, behind that um, in, in the community. So now you're already, you know, you have a few steps behind and getting control of things. Getting back to in reintroduction of mandates or, or masking mandates or distancing mandates, that's going to be tough to get buy-in in the community. So uh, a lot of it right now is we need to just get information out to people. So when we talk about um, the individual behavior aspects and, and some of the cautionary things people can be doing uh, as individuals, they at the very least have that data to be able to, uh, to, to have some context um, you know, to, to provide uh, for, for them for those decisions. It's, it's tough. It's tough right now with, you know, not having, um, you know, uh, testing being available. Certainly here in Manitoba, we're, mm-hmm. we're moving away from having testing clinics as of April 15th. Well, you have a virus that disproportionately affects vulnerable communities. Um, now you take away those testing options and, and rapid antigen, uh, you know, testing uh, accessibility and, and you remove those things. Well, you put a disproportionate burden on a community that was already disproportionately burdened by this disease. And, and that's when we talk about the inequities in, in communities. This is what we're getting at, that we, we can't think 
uh, about everything being spread equally across every aspect of, of our community in Canada. It's, it's very, very different. So th- these are all the things that, that take me back to saying, listen, we're not through this yet. I'm more optimistic than I was you know, last year at this time, certainly, and even probably a few months ago. Um, but I, there's some consternation with that. I, I think that we, we've got to be prepared um, for the ebbs and flows that are going to come with, with going back to some amount of normalcy in our lives again. We, we certainly do. And, you know, you make so many great points there. Um, if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is one 877 That's one 877 Call or text the program. I do have a text here for you, um, Dr. Kinderchuk. And I didn't know this, and maybe it's not even true. <laughs> Why is graphene used in COVID vaccines? This is what many anti-vaxxers build their conspiracy theories on. Is graphene used in COVID vaccines? Not that I've ever seen on any of the ingredients. And I know that there's been a lot of discussion about this whole, uh, this whole concept of graphene being used and, and whether or not this was, you know, so there, there was some other aspect of toxicity that was being treated. This, I, I haven't seen anything, certainly for, uh, for, for the mRNA vaccines or the vaccines that, that are authorized in Canada to provide any substance for that. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. He actually studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. We do have a caller on the line, Mary from Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Hello, Mary. Well, I heard Dr. Kinderchuk say, uh, I believe, an Ebola-related virus they, they think is coming from bats. And I just wondered, with this current virus and so on and the possible link to bats although i heard you say we, we don't know but what makes bats such a great host for this virus for these viruses oh that's a great question mary and, and actually and, and i laugh because that honestly um it, it is because it's, it's very complex uh certainly it's something that uh, that, that we talk about in uh, in in my lectures uh, quite often and something we're, we're working on in my lab. So there's a few things, right? I mean, one is that when we look across different, uh, different animals and specifically different mammals, um, our immune systems are very, very different, right? So there, there are certainly things across, uh, across different mammals uh, in our immune system that, that are redundant, that are very similar. There are things that are different. One of the things we see with bats, certainly, is that their behavior, their immune system behavior in regards to different uh, pathogens is very, very different. And what we can see, so if you look at things like rabies virus, we look at Nipah virus, Hendra virus, the, the different Ebola viruses, coronaviruses. Um, what, what they're able to do is, is basically have this, I want to say symbiotic relationship, but it's almost, uh, a, a, we get a persistence, right? So the virus gets in, um, the immune system in the bats is enough to keep it at bay so that it doesn't cause disease, the animals don't get sick, but it's not enough to eliminate it. Um, and what ends up happening is that as bats uh, migrate around, they also uh, they also have very very different um, uh, I guess ways that their bodies react to temperature changes. Um, that allows them to to see different stressors in the community, and that will sometimes precipitate a, a change in how viruses will replicate. So then they get released. All of it is to basically say bats are very unique, and that's what makes them such good hosts for these different viruses. So when we talk about bats as, you know, as being likely reservoirs, it's not because we're just saying, well, it probably is because people have said this about other viruses. It's in fact because bats are very, very good at this. And when we look at RNA viruses in particular, um, this continues to be over and over again, the same story that, that we see with bats. And, and we can't call, great answer. We can't call the um, 
bats either because that will affect the food supply. I learned that from your Forbes article. <laughs> and I have a right. Yeah. But, but if I we were more like that. Oh. Oh. Go ahead, Mary. I was going to say, if we were more like bats and we had the virus, but we didn't get sick with it, then it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, well, and that's the thing is that we do have different viruses that we uh, that we interact with on, on a daily basis or, or you know, at least in, during times in our lives where we actually behave like bats. Right. So part, part of this is that the, the complexity of viruses in our in our community and certainly in, in you know, our, our global community is much more complex and much more diverse than I think we realize. It's not you know, kind of a handful of viruses. It's actually unbelievable amounts of viruses that, that we encounter. And I think we're just mm. getting to a point of understanding this. Okay, thank you. It's fascinating. Mary, thank you so much. I have Bruce on the line from Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Bruce. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, I was just curious, the doctor referred to um, graphene not being on a list of ingredients. I've been looking for that list of ingredients. Is that something he can share? Yeah. So which which vaccine are you looking for? Pfizer, uh, Moderna, J&J, uh, AstraZeneca? Well, well, in particular, I was curious about the J&J. Yeah. So, so any of the vaccines that are uh, authorized or that are licensed, uh, those ingredients are fully available publicly. So I'm, I'm looking at... The uh, the Politifact uh, article on uh, on that claim. Uh, this was the uh, Jeremy Sladen, I believe, that was in the video from Facebook. Uh, so if you go through, uh, what they do is that they actually have links to the full approvals for the vaccines, um, as well as descriptions of where to be able to get that information from. Dr. Jason Kindrichuk is my guest. He is a scientist who actually studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. Dr. Kinderchuk, we have so many text messages here <laughs> for you. Um, but if sure. you would like to, uh, if you'd like to call or talk to the doctor, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-98. All right. Wow. Where do I begin? Um, okay, here, how about this one? Is the newest variant more deadly? Will the variants decrease in degree of dead? Will the variants decrease in degree of deadliness over the time as they mutate? A uh, couple ways to look at this. Okay, there's there's a glass half full, glass half empty way. So the the, the easiest thing to say is, uh, listen, when we think about variants, um, one thing we have to appreciate is that you know mutations are random, right? So. This idea that the more that a virus, um, you know, uh, you know, transmits and moves across communities, the greater likelihood and greater push there is going to be for it to become less virulent so that it can become more transmissible because there is a, a fitness cost. Well, it's not actually necessarily true. Right. So you can have viruses that that maintain a high level of virulence, but are increase their, their transmissibility, uh, you know, as long as they are still able to. Uh, to be transmitted prior to that organism that, that they've infected uh, dying and not being able to pass the virus on. So, so the, the idea that as this virus continues to move through the population, we absolutely will, will see that it, it loses its virulence. Not necessarily, right? Influenza 1918 certainly did that. Um, we, we don't know whether 1918 H1N1 virus did that. We don't know if this one will. Now, the other aspect is when we look back at, at immunity, one of the things we have to appreciate is that Yes, we're seeing more variants, but we're also seeing more people that, that have been vaccinated and, and then uh, infected, people that have been infected by multiple variants, 
um, we have a high level of immunity in the population, right? So even if we have a virus that doesn't lose virulence, but, but increases transmissibility, we are also seeing greater immunity in the population. So over time, there's going to be a greater amount of protection, and hopefully that is going to help us with getting control of, of where this virus is going. But we, we continue to see new variants. That's the unfortunate reality is you give viruses the opportunity to continue to transmit. They're going to keep making mutations. And once in a while, you get the right constellation of mutations, and we get a new variant of concern, and the, the tale goes on and on and on. And, and speaking of immunity, we'll go to one of the myths, and I, and I hear this quite frequently. And in fact, I get letters from mostly, uh, you know, the occasionally doctors, but mostly naturopathic doctors who will write letters on behalf of their patients to say exactly this. This person doesn't need to have a booster because they have been sick with COVID-19 and are not eligible, and they may have been sick a year ago with it. Um, but they also will mention that the natural immunity that the person gets from being sick with COVID-19 is better than the immunity that one gets from the COVID-19 vaccination. What is uh, the truth on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, if, if, and, and I say that, you know, from the, from the sense where I, I have the exasperated side, because if, if listen, if immunology was, was this easy, um, I, certainly I would understand it a lot better, um, but, but it would be so much easier for us to deal with infectious diseases, right? But, but it's not. Um, so, so where are we right now? Well, even if we look back at, at BA1 and BA2 uh, and, and Omicron in general, what we've seen has actually been very different from Delta. Delta, there was actually some data that came out that said, you know what, people that were infected by Delta actually looks like they've got pretty good uh, um, uh, bumps in, in immunity and, and protection or at least uh, antibody responses. And it may actually, uh, for, for this particular variant, uh, be the same or, or potentially better than vaccination. But then we moved Omicron, and Omicron, now there was some South African data that had shown people that were vaccinated and then got infected. Um, they had really good uh, you know, bumps in, in immunity, but they had good neutralizing antibody uh, activity against prior variants, as well as Omicron. People that were infected by Omicron but didn't get vaccinated, you know what, their, their neutralizing antibody activities against prior variants wasn't very good. So you, you look at that data, and the first thing that, that you think is, okay, well, yeah, variants, you know, we've seen prior variants, and Omicron has replaced all of those. But what happens when there's another variant? So if, if we already are seeing that there is a change in the ability of, uh, you know, of these uh, neutralizing antibodies to be able to, to recognize prior variants, now we've got to be a little bit more precautious. So when we look at people that were only infected, that's why we talk about vaccination is that it looks like the breadth of the antibodies that are being produced actually is much better. And so far for the vaccines, and I will say it again, when you look at hospitalizations and you look at severe disease, there hasn't been a variant that has been able to supersede the vaccines. We've seen a drop in protection from infection, but those other two variables, which arguably are, are critically important for us in our healthcare systems, they've held up very well at everything the virus has thrown at us. Yeah, I mean, it's they're miraculous, really, and, and um, yet people still have a hard time with them. Here's another question that I just think is hilarious. If doctors still believe mask wearing is one way out of this, then why are they not demanding our moron politicians <laughs> to keep mandating it in big venues like shopping? You know, the thing I think people forget is that they can make their own decision to wear a mask. I'm going to continue to wear a mask in, when I'm mingling with the public, <laughs> as I like to say. Well, 
Um, and it's difficult for physicians to speak out. But go ahead. It, it, yeah, and, and I think, you know, I, I would argue again that, um, I mean, it, it's difficult, but I think as well, there have been a number of, of physicians and, and, uh, and certainly um, uh, healthcare workers and biomedical researchers that have spoken out. I look at, you know, th- mm-hmm. those of us in, in this province that have and continue to, um, you know, certainly calling into question the idea of removing all the restrictions um, at, at once and kind of ad hoc. Um, without you know, doing this more uh, from a, a stepwise uh, assessment and, and providing surveillance and looking to see, okay, what is the change? Um, there, there is that, that aspect of saying, okay, we're in a different place. We, we need to be able to test the waters to figure out what leeway we have with the virus. Um, I think it should have been done more slowly, certainly. Um, but uh, when it gets back to, to speaking uh, to, uh, to, to politicians about this and, and certainly to decision makers, I think we have been, and we've been trying to continue to communicate that. Um, they're, you know, they're in a different position than we are. They're making decisions based on, on different things than, than we are. Um, I look at this and say, we just need to figure out how to get the virus to, to stop transmitting. And we've got to appreciate that just because things are moving in the right direction, it doesn't mean that we're at the end, uh, at the end of the goal line yet. Exactly. And, and you can still wear your mask out there. And I, I'm still yeah. wearing mine. And I think it's very important that, that people continue to do that. Um, now, here's another. Uh, we're going to go back to the myths. Um, the COVID-19 vaccines, I'll put these together. They contain microchips or um, receiving a COVID-19 vaccine can make you magnetic. <laughs> and they're not talking about attracting other people. Uh, a magnetic yeah. personality. Um, well, so how do vaccines work? How do these, um, you know, how does the mRNA, the messenger RNA work? Yeah. So the, so the mRNA question is, is great, right? Actually, I just wrote uh, in a, a case that I'm an expert witness in, wrote a, a very lengthy, uh, you know, kind of review of, of mRNA vaccines. So listen, <laughs> these are vaccines that have been around for a couple of, at least the, the technology has been around for a couple of decades, right? So some prior okay. clinical trials on looking at HIV and looking at influenza, looking at other viruses. Um, so mRNA is not new. Uh, and the reason that, that people have approached this is mRNA, when we think about kind of the, the central dogma of biology and of life, it's we have DNA in our genes. Our DNA ultimately uh, provides, you know, has different genes in it. Those genes code for different proteins and proteins create the three-dimensional structures that, that we have uh, and, and, and really give us, you know, a very, very many different as- aspects of life. Um, in between the movement from DNA to protein is RNA. Um, so it's how we basically, you know, move from a box of parts to a final project. So you have, you know, basically the RNA is kind of the blueprints that, that allows you to piece everything together. Um, one of the things that, that people have looked at is this idea for vaccines. If you can provide the RNA transcript for a particular protein um, and, and give that to basically your cells, um, that would give your cells the blueprint to basically create the protein that will ultimately be recognized by your immune system. You'll get antibodies and, and a long-term immune response generated. Well, the reason we do it is because protein vaccines or protein-based vaccines, they work very well, but they're very difficult to produce en masse. We've seen that with Novavax. We've seen that with other vaccines. Peter Hotez's vaccine uh, is hopefully going to help with, with moving things ahead. But mRNA vaccines... You can actually manufacture much faster. And by the way, you can also adapt them very quickly. So if you have a virus that is changing very quickly, you have the ability to go in and actually change 
uh, the, the you know the different segments of that protein to to match what what you're now trying to go after. So it, it's it becomes a question of saying, well, listen, the manufacturing is actually much faster, um, but also from the endpoint of what our, our immune system is seeing, it's still seeing the same protein. And that's the important part is that with all these vaccines, they're they're basically going after the spike protein of the of SARS-CoV-2. So whether it's from uh, an mRNA or whether it's from the actual you know purified protein or a segment of that protein, ultimately your cells are seeing the same thing at at the end, and and that's really why we're moving to this. And I think it it, it has opened up a, a broad new area of of vaccine development. Um, will it work for every mm-hmm. virus or every pathogen? No, um, but we need more platforms, and, and that's the important part. Is because we are not going to win this war against bugs uh, against the, the different viruses and, and bacteria that we face it's about trying to come to some sort of standstill so that we can continue to uh to, to be able to, to hold back what we're facing exactly you know and this is embarrassing for me to say but my brother-in-law actually thinks i mean he's an educated man he actually thinks I'm not speaking to him anymore, but anyway, <laughs> that COVID-19 vaccines <laughs> contain microchips. I mean, he actually sent me an article. I am speaking to him. I'm kidding, but <laughs> I feel like not speaking to him. Um, but that he actually believes that. Like, here is somebody that is, you know, educated person whose wife is immunocompromised. <laughs> and he actually thinks that the, and his father-in-law died of COVID and, uh, and he's not getting vaccinated. I mean, it's just it's just mind boggling. Um, I have another question here. Would the doctor agree that this is a wave driven by idiocy as opposed to by Omicron? Oh, uh, you know what? It's so uh, <laughs> there are people that are making. I, I'm going to be I'm going to be very very prairie Canadian, right? I'm going to take the the centrist line and say, listen, there, there's there's fifty fifty on this, right? So we have people making bad decisions, one hundred percent. But the, the virus hasn't really helped us either, right? It's listen, it's more transmissible than what Delta was, which already was exceedingly mm-hmm. transmissible. So um, it, we're not dealing with the same virus we dealt with at the start of 2020. So. We're not doing ourselves any favors uh, by any stretch of the imagination, um, but the the continual transmission of this virus has ultimately re- you know resulted in in new variants that that are better at what they do. Um, at some point, we've got to look at this and say, okay, you know what? If we want to stop the, this chain of events, we got to get basically transmission uh, you know back cur- curtailed across the globe. And that's that's uh, listen, it's been the elephant in the room for you know over well over a year now. Um, I hope we're getting closer to making strides in that area, but uh, we, we, we need uh, people to, to step forward and certainly help facilitate that. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say, I was a bit nervous at the Grammys tonight. You know, I mean, there's closeness. I don't know if they have a COVID compliance officer there, but um, they're all close. Of course, they're singing, they're dancing through the crowds, you know, and you just think, oh, makes you a little bit nervous. But, you know, I think yeah. people should still remember that it's important to stay home. Don't go out if you don't have to. Don't mingle with the public. I'm still not eating in indoor restaurants. I'm still freezing outside, Um, you know, getting together in large groups. I mean, I think people feel that it's, you know, wild and free and it's all of a sudden it's gone and it definitely is not gone. And I think that that message, because people still need to be, or it seems, they still need to be parented by politicians, but you can make your own informed decision. Don't go into crowds. Don't mingle with the public. Don't eat in indoor restaurants. COVID is airborne. 
clean your air and uh, and wear a mask, quite honestly. I mean, it's I think it's very important. And as I say, I don't have any allergies anymore since I have been wearing a mask for two years. And that is really nice. <laughs> and not to mention the colds. I mean, I was like a respiratory <laughs> cesspool. I was getting yeah. two or three colds a year. And now, knock on I mean, wood, none. No, I mean, in, influenza has, has dropped off, which has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other aspect of all this, too, is that so we Omicron has been very different, right? And, and certainly it, it hit us hard because it was, uh, you know, it, it was just unbelievable amounts of cases very quickly. We saw stress on our healthcare system. The next wave, uh, it's probably going to be lesser than what we've seen before. But let's also appreciate we can't normalize what what we are seeing now as being normal either. So let's let's again take a step back and say, okay, having having stress on our healthcare system is not good. So. If we can get things under control by basic behavioral changes, we should be doing that. Um, right now, having you know, viruses that are widely transmitting and, and you know, certainly having a wide swath of people that are vulnerable, uh, even if they're vaccinated because of the fact that they have increased risk for severe disease, um, we, we've got to appreciate that, that there are those pockets and communities that are vulnerable. And, uh, and it's, it, it isn't normal for us to just have a, a virus that's widely spreading without knowing what it's doing. So we, we got to just be precautionary. Thanks so much for your text messages. There are too many for me to even answer, but I'm going to take this one because it has one of my favorite words in it. I love words. In fact, I wish I were a lawyer who gets paid by the words. If I got paid by the words, I'd be a billionaire. I speak so much. Anyway, hi, my mother lives in a 55-plus life lease building in Manitoba. The vast majority of residents are in their 70s and 80s. The owner recently removed the signs requiring masks in the common areas. Am I wrong to think that seeing as we're in the incipient, my favorite word, stages, one of them, stages of a new wave, the removal of mass requirements in that building is madness? Yeah, I'm going to answer that. It is madness because I want to go. We don't have much time. Dr. Jason Kinderjack is my guest. Um, and I just want to have, uh, I have another myth to for you to bust here. Dr. Kinderjack, getting a COVID-19 vaccine will cause me to test positive on a viral test. I've heard that no. too. People. Yeah, no, no. It will, it, most of most of the uh, the antigen tests will actually look for uh, the end protein, which is a different protein than the spike protein uh, that the, you uh, produce when uh, when you when you're vaccinated. So that's that's one of the ways we can distinguish no. if somebody's been been, uh, been been previously infected. Okay, now if somebody um, gets their vaccination and they develop an immune, well, what we want is them to develop an immune response to a vaccination. Yes. You know, that's basically the goal of the vaccines. But would some people might, is there a chance that some might test positive on some antibody tests? No, the, the, the antibody tests are, are purely to look for, for antibodies, right? And so we don't use self-antibodies to assess infection. If that just tells us if somebody has been exposed um, what we're looking for on the rapid antigen tests are, are actually pieces of, of the virus. We're looking for specifically for viral proteins. Okay, so there you go. Dispelling that myth as well. Let's see, I've got um, some more texts here also. Um, let's see, sorry, mixing it up here. Okay, another question. I hope we can get to this one. We don't have much time. Uh, to what degree are masks more effective at limiting spread by way of source control compared to wearing a mask to protect the wearer from being exposed to the airborne virus? I'm asking about how it's one thing for my elderly mother to wear a mask to protect herself, but it's perhaps more important for others around her to wear a mask in case they're infectious. We're talking about one-way masking here, 
effectively. Yeah. What are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, and on really, that? it gets back to the idea of masking is that you are trying to protect other people from, from, from your virus primarily, right? Which is why when we talk about this idea of being, uh, you know, the virus being able to be spread asymptomatically or pre symptomatically, you can spread it without having symptoms. Um, that the masking helps as a form of, of control. It also helps decrease your rate of infection, though. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Jason Kindershuk, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. This was fun. <laughs> hey, thanks, Maureen. Very much enjoyed it. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Here it is. Welcome back to the uh, final stroke of the Sunday night health show. We've got about a half an hour left. Uh, as you know, I do a sexual health clinical practice. Uh, I don't just focus on sexual health, but they come to me because they're not having sex. That's kind of the top layer, but there are so many things that lie beneath the sheets and, and so many things that uh, contribute to a sexless relationship or low sexual desire or erectile dysfunction, uh, some of the many different issues. But we certainly address in these coaching sessions, shall I say, everything from mental health to childhood, ACEs, for example, adverse childhood events, um, finances, mental health, emotional health, trauma, sexual abuse, um, so much contributes to a sexless marriage. And people are quite surprised. They just think, oh, we'll just go and see Maureen. And then usually one partner of the couple. And, um, you know, we'll be having sex by Tuesday. But that doesn't happen. It takes a while. And sometimes uh, it takes a long time to start communicating appropriately with your partner, understanding, becoming vulnerable, um, becoming comfortable with one's body, body image is another issue. Um, resentment can contribute to low sexual desire in a sexless marriage. There are just so many contributing factors. The kids, the kids are a big reason. Sex seems to stop once the kids come along. Fatigue, number one reason for low sexual desire, which obviously can lead to a, a sexless marriage. Painful sex, vaginismus, 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 and vestibulodynia. Um, vulvar vestibulodynia uh, can also contribute um, when it's painful. It's not going to be pleasurable, certainly. Um, so, so much. So I see lots of patients um, with issues. And, and oftentimes I speak with patients about the elusive G-spot, but there's actually a call to change the name from the G-spot to the G-zone. Many of my colleagues and sexual health experts are actually making a, creating a campaign to change this term because they say that the term that is used to describe an erogenous area of the vagina that triggers for many, many people, intense orgasms when stimulating, stimulated is actually misleading because it's not just a spot. And this spot has been difficult to find for many, many people. If you have ever taken that trip, um, it can be a long journey, but it has been popularly described um, as being in an area that is located a few inches inside the vagina on the upper walls of the organ. So if you were to insert two fingers in, uh, it would be that interior wall and it kind of feels, um, it's, it's a little bit of a rough um, area of tissue, a rougher area of tissue. But um, 
the experts actually claim that there's no single spot that exists, that there's actually five separate erotogenic tissues that perform the pleasure sensation that is ascribed to that G-spot. And so the five areas, and you know, every now and again, I go rogue on you. I go a little science, a little anatomy, a little physiology. And so here we go with the anatomy. Uh, the five zones are the clitoral crura, the clitoral bulb, the periurethral glands, the anterior vaginal wall itself, and the urethra. As you probably know, the G-spot is named after a German gynecologist, Ernst Grafenberg, who actually described the orgasm-producing area in the 1950s, but uh, he did not coin the term G-spot. But what do you think? Do you think it should be called G-spot, or what do you think about calling it G-zone? Do you have any experience with that? Feel free to give me a call or a text. The number to call is one 399 9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. It is important that we describe uh, the areas of the body appropriately. That that is extremely helpful with uh, education and so for for patients to understand how things actually work. Um, I do want to say that, um, you know, having a G-spot orgasm is has been described by many women as, you know, incredibly pleasurable. And, and, you know, this is certainly sought after in intimacy, but um, just speaking about clitoral orgasms and, and the G zone area is closely tied to the clitoris, to the clitoral area. But um, just want to remind you that it about 70% of women require clitoral stimulation in order to experience orgasm. So that's a, a small fact that a lot of women are not aware of. And so many, many women actually take a very long time to experience orgasm or they have never experienced orgasm, but they didn't realize that it requires clitoral stimulation. It also requires a little self-stimulation um, and a little exploration as well, which is actually what I meant to say. It requires a little bit of Exploration, taking time to yourself, uh, spending time by yourself, with yourself, for yourself uh, to understand what feels good for you so that you can describe that to your partner uh, or partners if you are in um, a multi-relationship, which is becoming increasingly more common. I'm sure it's going to become even more common as uh, we remove the masks and start to live again. Um, but you know, it's, it's important that we talk about pleasure for when we educate because pleasure is poorly understood and, and seriously, the only reason for the clitoris is for pleasure and the, the G zone as well. I mean, there are blood vessels there and, um, you know, that helps to keep the tissue, but, but in all seriousness, you know, pleasure is an important aspect of sexual health education that is often left out. And so I like the fact that my sexual health colleagues and sexual health experts are, have come to this conclusion, you know, because the original description of the area that was first described by Dr. Grafenberg acts like it is this one small spot of the anterior vaginal wall that contains a distinct er- erotogenic zone. But the, the fact that the G spot is actually a G zone is a little bit more 
related to the actual functions of the erotic zone. And the three functions of the erotic zone are pleasurable sensations, swelling, and fluid ejaculations. And since no single spot is responsible for all of those functions, the it is felt that it's likely the five separate tissues are involved with the G-zone. And so that's why it is thought that the G-spot is misleading and therefore inappropriate. And I actually feel that education, sexual health education must be appropriate and it must be accurate as well. And so um, this is something that, you know, I think will help advance the progress of sex education. The five erotic regions of the anterior vaginal wall will be more accurately and appropriately termed the Grafenberg zone or the G zone. Um, And so this is something to consider. And also mindfulness is very important um, for sexual desire, um, sexual arousal, and also experiencing orgasm. And so it's very important that when you are intimate with somebody that you're not thinking of your shopping list or the finances or the resentments that you might have or what you have to do the next day, but it's actually very important to focus on the area, the area that you are seeking pleasure. And so to think about, like we often advise women to think of the genitalia during sex. So not to think of what color you're going to change the ceiling, paint. No, no, that's not going to be helpful in terms of (laughs) experiencing an orgasm. Um, But it is maybe going to make you happy (laughs) the next day, um, thinking that you've made the decision on that paint color. But no, we often uh, educate women to think of their genitalia during sex. And so that is very, very important. Um, And so now we will probably be focusing more on thinking of that area, thinking of that zone. It's just not just a spot, which can be very difficult. And, and people might be, you know, it's a very sought after zone, I will say, um, and with every experience. And so, you know, you can have a little bit of fun trying to find it as well. Um, but if somebody thinks it's a tiny little spot versus that it is an entire area that it, that it involves uh, five different areas of tissue, you know, we're expanding our, our thought process on that. Um, you know, keeping in mind that the science behind the G-spot is certainly contentious with various studies claiming that it doesn't even exist. A lot of people claiming that it doesn't even exist because researchers can't find it. But there have been a lot of people who have found the G-zone, as we're going to call it, henceforth. Um, but uh, you know, it's difficult to pinpoint for some researchers to pinpoint the exact location, the size, or the nature of this area. Um, it's described in research studies as being akin to the lost city of Atlantis. And there's another hypothesis that the G, formerly called the G spot, now called the G zone, is simply a deep-lying inner part of the clitoris simulated during sex. Now, the two are certainly related, but some experts have also claimed studies saying the G-spot doesn't exist. You know, when when researchers say that, they are really discounting the experiences of many, many, multiple women who claim and who have definitely had one. 
um, have had a G-zone orgasm. But if we focus too much uh, on the G-spot in terms of female sexual pleasure, that might make those who struggle to experience orgasm from its stimulation feel inadequate or abnormal. And we never want women to feel inadequate or abnormal. It's very important to feel healthy and well, and also a to also experience pleasure in intimacy with your partners. I often say to patients, especially female patients or people who identify as female, you know, sex is for you too. And they're just like, you know, that is mind blowing, <laughs> mind blowing to a lot of women. Um, but it's true. Sex is not just about pleasing somebody else. It's actually uh, mutual. It's consenting, loving, and um, it's for both of you. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being with me this evening. I'm very grateful that you're here. In fact, I feel blessed. You know, every now and again, you come across somebody who inspires you incredibly and just, I mean, almost just breaks your heart. They're so amazing. And recently I hired somebody to work for me and we did some work in in some hotels across one of the biggest cities in North America. And uh, as this person was going through the different hotel rooms, he said, wow, I can't believe it. The showers have glass on them. And I just stopped and thought, wow, he'd never seen a shower with a glass door. It's just amazing. Sometimes we take the simplest things in life for granted. This same person, when I ask him how he is when he arrives to work in the morning, will say to me, blessed, how are you? And I think, oh my gosh, it literally stopped me in my tracks one day. And I said, blessed. That's the most beautiful response that I'd ever heard. And he said, well, of course I am. I'm here today. I'm so grateful to be here today working for you and being with this great team. And I just thought in that moment, that is all this person is thinking about. How many times do we complain about not having enough, not having an expensive coat or the ability to go indoors to dine in an expensive restaurant or complain about the smallest things in life or get easily offended by somebody who has no malice of forethought. This person changed my view on people and my view on life. If we all stopped and thought, how am I? I'm blessed. I'm walking. I'm breathing. I have friends. I have family. I have woken up today. I am looking at the grass from up above. I have something to drink, a roof over my head, food, food for my children, clothing. I have shoes. I was raised in a family where if you complained about something, my mother would say, I complained about my shoes until I met a man who had no feet. I was taught to be grateful and appreciative, but this gentleman, this very gentle man who I so fortunately hired <laughs> by the grace of God has taught me gratitude on a whole new level. It's time, especially in this time, this pandemic, we all thought about what we have and how grateful we are and that we stop comparing ourselves to others, our cars, our homes, our clothing, our university, our everything. 
By comparing yourselves to other people, you actually suffer because most people think they have less when actually you have more. So the next time somebody says to you, how are you? Consider your answer to be blessed. Well, that's a wrap. Doesn't time fly when we're having fun? Hopefully you had some fun. I did. I always have fun though, (laughs) no matter what. I would like to personally thank Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, who has tirelessly educated us about COVID-19 over the past two years. We practically have an honorary PhD in this COVID thing. I know a lot of you have already gotten one from Facebook or Twitter, but this one is real. This one from the Sunday Night Hell Show. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also would like to thank my callers and those who have emailed in. The show wouldn't be the same without you. Really appreciate your contribution. And my guests, of course, have been so gracious in contributing to this program as well. So thank you so much. I am truly blessed. But I would really like to thank Leo. He's behind the boards. He not only manages me, which is a tremendous feat in and of itself, he manages all of the phone calls and texts and the behind the scenes work that lead up to the delivery of this program. So thanks so much, Leo. Couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to listen to this program again, feel free to go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast because I'm there. I'm also on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Feel free to follow me or connect with me. You can go to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com. But remember one important thing. When you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. When we fail, those are the lessons that we learn. But really, above all, next time somebody asks you how you are, think of the gentleman that I hired. You might answer, well, instead of answering, I'm okay, I'm fine, good, without even thinking. You might try thinking about it, thinking what you have, thinking that you're walking, that you're breathing, that you have a beautiful family or friends or that the sun is shining. And maybe, just maybe, think about answering blessed. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.